0: W Media
1: Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Well, we've had another busy week in our corner of the
0: spy world with a new wave of Russian cyber espionage attacks targeting the U.S. government. Think tanks, large companies, Kosovo expelling Russian diplomats accused of spying. And get this, British intelligence agencies contracting Amazon Web Services to boost their espionage efforts with data analytics and artificial intelligence. I suppose they'll get same-day delivery. Gene?
1: Next Thursday, November 11th, is Veterans Day. And on that day, Hulu will release an investigative film about the death of four American special forces in Niger in 2017. Its title is 3212 Unredacted, and it uncovers what an official Pentagon report tried to hide.
2: And they issued a report that was 268 pages long that was filled with, you know, the the black marks or or white blocks redacting information. And the film essentially, the investigative backbone of this film, as we track the grief of the families transitioning into suspicion and deep anger over the story they're being told, is about stripping away the redactions and revealing the truth of, of the story.
1: That was James Gordon Meek, the producer and investigative reporter behind the film 3212 Unredacted. We'll talk to him about the soldiers, their families, and the enormous gaps and failures in the Pentagon's response to their deaths in just a bit.
0: Looking forward to that, Gene. We haven't paid a lot of attention to Latin America, meanwhile, with so much else going on here at home on Topics ranging from violent domestic extremism to news related to Afghanistan, China, and Russia. But the arrest of Venezuela's ex-spy boss in Spain last week caught my eye. So I called up David Smiley, a distinguished expert on Venezuela at Tulane University, who's closely tracked events in Caracas where intrigue and bizarre coup attempts seem to be part of the daily diet. David Smiley, welcome to Spy Talk. So last week, a Spanish court agreed to extradite Hugo Carvajal, Venezuela's former spy chief to the United States. Carvajal is known as El Pollo or the chicken. So tell us more about him and why the United States wants him here.
3: Hugo Carvajal was actually one of the original uh, participants with Hugo Chavez in the nineteen ninety two coup. They knew each other from the military academy, and he was he was he was right in there with the mix. So he was Hugo Chavez from from the very beginning. During most of the Chavez uh, years, he was he had some position, but he most importantly for for many years he was the head of the military intelligence during Chavez. And so this was important because at this time, if you remember. The Chavez government had ties to the FARC, the Colombian rebel group that operated on the Venezuelan-Colombian border. So there was lots of accusations. You know, now it's pretty clear that uh, indeed the Chavez government had contacts with them, and, and that that certainly makes sense since they were a sort of a leftist guerrilla group, and and Chavez at that time identified as sort of. A the socialist leftist Latin American and, and, and you know, with ties to Cuba and and logically with the FARC,
0: so and so he was all in ideologically with Hugo Chavez back in the day. Yeah,
3: absolutely, and so the reason the United States uh, originally indicted him is that, as in his position, he uh, would give documentation to the FARC. He would provide them the protection information on Venezuelan military forces, how to avoid Venezuelan military forces. And apparently in 2006, the the U.S. had information that he was involved in coordinating a drug shipment from Mm. Mexico, five and a half tons of of cocaine. And so that's what the actual indictment is about. But really behind it, the reason the U.S. was interested in it beyond the drugs was that they're very interested in, you know, Venezuelan involvement with the FARC, given that that was a real complication for, It's ally Colombia.
0: Sure. It needs to be said that he denies all these accusations that he's been involved in the drug trade. In fact, he's making counter accusations that uh, uh, Maduro and several other high officials are, in fact, the real drug kingpins in in Venezuela. Seems to me that would give him a strong card to play in any negotiations with U.S. authorities about his uh, prosecution and trial.
3: Yeah, you would think that this this is, you know, one of the things that would be interesting is after after the Chavez government, he was he was still always had some sort of role in the Maduro government and finally was part of the National Assembly. These charges have been hanging over his head and and he certainly knows quite a bit about the Maduro government as well. But he eventually flipped on Maduro. Uh he flipped on Maduro when the White push against Maduro's second term came. Around in February of 2019, he came out and said that the military should turn on Maduro and should support Juan Guaido.
0: Now, Now, let's just uh, back up and explain to people who Guaido is and uh, the opposition revolt and the U.S. recognized this guy uh, and it fizzled.
3: Sure. So uh, Nicolas Maduro was reelected in 2018 in elections that the opposition did not participate in that were widely considered to be fraudulent. And so in January 2019, Juan Guaido, who was president of the National Assembly, declared himself interim president, said that was not did not actually have another term, but the presidency was vacant, and that he was the interim president. And the United States immediately, of course, the United States knew this was going to happen, and the United States immediately recognized Guaido, as did any number of other countries in the, in the hemisphere. And There was a big push for for several weeks. It looked like, you know, Maduro could be overthrown. It was in this context that Hugo Carvajal came out with a video saying that the armed forces should turn on Maduro. Now, you can imagine if you're in Carvajal's shoes and you have drug indictments, you've had drug indictments for over 10 years hanging over your head and you think Maduro might fall. Well, you think at that time that might be a good time to turn on Maduro try to get in the good graces with the United States. And so, you know, I suspect that that's what was going on with Carvajal then. He he didn't he needed to immediately and the, then uh, flee to Spain. But within a year of the U.S. had had already uh, uh, proceeded to try uh, extradite him uh, from Spain. The Spanish uh, detained him uh, on those charges.
0: The situation is very muddy in Venezuela, and I think most people have lost track of it, given everything else that's been going on with a pandemic and January 6th insurrection, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The Biden um, administration and so on, which I want to get back to in a moment. But bring us up to date on this other weird, bizarre plot to overthrow the government that was carried out by American mercenaries who plotted to kill President Maduro or kidnap him. It was really a farce. It's been lampooned as the Bay of Biglets uh, in reference to the, the fumbled attempt to overthrow Castro back in 1961. What's, what's going on with that? A couple of former U.S. Special Forces soldiers are in jail, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of Luke Denman and, and his comrade Barry, uh, I forget his first name, uh, are jailed, still jailed because of this. And they, they participated and they were immediately captured by Venezuelan armed forces. Yes, this was, this was a really pathetic, yeah, comical attempt at a mercenary attack in May of 2020 that they thought that they were going to go in and kidnap Maduro and, and put an end to the regime. Of course, they were immediately trapped and immediately uh, put down and, and arrested
0: this I've read. I've read that they came ashore in two boats. There were six, about sixty men, and they had ten rifles between them. And the Americans didn't even speak Spanish.
3: Yeah, yeah, it was it was really crazy. And so, I mean, th- this was something that was hatched really from Colombia. You no, know, there's this organization called Silver Corps uh, out of Florida that also is a former former U.S. soldier that organizes it that had been in talks with the Huaylo interim government in September of 2019. Right about the time that they pulled out of the negotiation process, the Norwegian-led negotiation process with the, with the government in September 2019, they were simultaneously negotiating with different mercenary outfits and indeed and, and contracted with Silver Corps. They later apparently pulled out of that contract, but Silver Corps proceeded anyway. And now it turns out that that Server Corps, that initiative was infiltrated by Maduro government. And, and so they knew all about it. They knew it was coming. And some suggest that they've even promoted it and made it continue. And this is this is what the families of, of Denman and Barry say, is that they didn't actually even know they were going to Venezuela. They thought that they were going elsewhere. They didn't realize that the attack was on. And so that's 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 their argument.
0: Maybe they shouldn't have gotten involved in the first place. Right. Such a wacky idea. None of them had any experience in Venezuela, yeah. didn't speak Spanish, didn't know anything about the place. Uh, and they were sort of self-styled uh, freedom fighters, more like yeah, just I think they... money on the barrel types. But and let me ask you about the guy who organized it, Jordan Goudreau. He's disappeared.
3: Oh, really? I didn't even know he's disappeared. But he, uh, yeah, he, he's, he's really something. He's operating out of Florida. Josh Goodman of the Associated Press had done a number of, of interviews with him. And uh, yeah, he's quite a character. You know, it, 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 all of these people have an absolute cartoonish image of what a place like Venezuela is. I think they watched, you know, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang with Dick Van Dyke too many times and thought that you could sweep into a country, rescue the people and take off. Because they thought that at one point Goudreau said that, oh, well, you know, we could go in with so few people because one of our soldiers is like 500 of their soldiers, you know, which is which is absolutely ridiculous, especially yeah. when they're likely armed. So, yeah, it's, it's a very sad chapter in, 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 this, in this entire process. And really, I think he legitimated White O. No?
0: Yeah, that was bad math from this from the get go. Now, the Miami Herald reported that uh, Goudreau's company, he's a Canadian-American uh, former Special Forces soldier that that he had provided security for a 2018 Donald Trump rally. Uh, and then he was acquainted with Keith Schiller, who was the longtime security chief of uh, the Trump organization and Donald Trump. In, uh, specifically, are there any facts that would suggest that this plot was backed by the Trump administration?
3: Well, I, you know, I don't think so. Uh, you know, all of that uh, Goudreau's involvement as security and Trump rallies, what that indicates is, you know, you have a lot of soldiers, special forces soldiers that come back. What they know is security and arms and and, and violence. And so they often drift from different security operations and try to float, you know, try to figure out what they can do with what they know. And so. You know, I don't I haven't seen any real evidence uh, that the Trump administration was behind this. You know, I think it would be a really pathetic effort if it was. And, uh, you know, that said, I, I suspect that, you know, there are people in the Trump administration that knew that the Huaido government was talking with different mercenary outfits or looking at that option. I'd be very, very surprised if they didn't know that.
0: So there's been another legal clash involving the United States and Venezuela, David Smiley. The U.S. extradited a key financial ally of Maduro, and that resulted in a retaliation of jailing of the so-called Citgo Six. What's going on with that? Well, uh,
3: Alex Saab is a Colombian businessman who, really, for the 15 years, has been collaborating with the government in different ways, helping them import goods and foodstuffs and construction. Of course, a lot of these businesses that are not very well regulated, using shell companies. There's all kinds of kickbacks involved, overpricing uh, involved. And so he was basically uh, uh, indicted for money laundering. And in 2020, June 2020, he was detained in Cape Verde on his way to Iran. He was on his way to Iran to broker a gasoline deal by Interpol uh, as as a solicitation of the United States. And so it took uh, 16 months or so, but finally the Cape Verde approved the extradition, and Saab was extradited to the United States. This, of course, is enraging Venezuela because Alex Saab is a very not just a very important person, a very important type of person. The important person because he's collaborated with the government, and has been key to them circumventing U.S. sanctions, the oil sector, and food and 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 all kinds of other different businesses, he has been key to to them circumventing. Even if he skimmed off the top, even if he's corrupt, he's been very useful to them. And so he's valuable. But I think even more important is that for the Venezuelan government, it's important for them to demonstrate that they will protect people like that. Because like Alex Saab, there are many others. And there are networks that he developed and other people that developed that still exist that are key to maintaining uh, the regime working. You no, know? they're the ones that, that bring the goods and sell the oil. And so it's important for them to send signals that they're going to defend their own.
0: So Alex Saab may have a lot to say about shadowy networks between Iran and Venezuela uh, that will be of great interest to the United States. It's something, yeah. uh, and on that question of Iran and Venezuela, by the way, uh, there's been a, a fair amount of sensationalist reporting, I, I think, about Iran's uh, relationship with Venezuela, but uh, there's clearly a relationship and they're through oil, if nothing else. What, what's your assessment of that relationship?
3: Well, I, I think, of course, there's a relationship. There are two countries that are sort of out of the loop of sort of Western democracies. You no, know, they are authoritarian countries. They have a lot of common. They're all sanctioned by the United States. So, of course, they're going to collaborate. You no, know, Iran has been key to Venezuela keeping its population running with gasoline, you know. And in that sense, you know, of course, Iran is stigmatized by the United States, and so is Venezuela. So this seems like very really dark and mysterious and, and terrible in the, uh, business. But from the Venezuelan perspective, you know, Iran has really been uh, a lifeline for, for the Venezuelan population. I mean, even, even, you know, people I know in Venezuela, when I'm there, who are absolutely against the Maduro government, We'll check marine tracker or vessel finder to try and see when the Iranian ships are going to arrive with gasoline you know, because they have a huge impact on, on how they plan their future. And so, of course, there's probably military uh, collaboration. You no. Know, and and there, are, there are flights between you know, their commercial flights between Karakas and Tehran. Of course, I'm sure there's good that pass between these. But, you know, I, in, in the end, I think it's a quite understandable collaboration between two countries that are on the outs of the United States.
0: So if Alex Sab is planning to play some sort of Iran card in his negotiations with the Justice Department, he probably doesn't have much to play. I suspect that these flights and these uh, oil shipments and so on are being closely monitored by the United States. And there are very few secrets uh, about the Venezuelan-Iranian relationship. Would you agree with that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's it's necessarily a case in which the United States is dying to to get secrets. I think a lot, of, a lot of these things are pretty well known and understood. It's more an issue of the United States, you know, when they, when they first indicted Saab and, and proceeded, of trying to control or trying to prevent Venezuela from getting around sanctions. No, and so Saab has been the architect or one of the key people in, in developing, you know, and Venezuela has basically been able to circumvent sanctions with the help of Russia, Iran, China, and intermediaries like Saab. Who broker the deals. And so I think it's it's more it's more of that trying to crack down on, on the actual operation than, than getting access to a trove of information. That said, I'm sure Maduro and Al are are quite concerned about the information that he has and, and what it what it could be for them.
0: Has the Biden administration developed a policy towards Venezuela? If these sanctions continue to be ineffective, let's say, and Venezuela continues to be a welcome zone. To not only the Iranians but uh, Russians, Chinese, and so on. First of all, do you detect any policy toward Venezuela? The Biden administration is pretty busy right now, and uh, how do you see this unfolding as the next year goes on?
3: Well, really, there has been the main story with the Biden administration is that they haven't really changed
0: gears with, with
3: Venezuela. No, a lot of us thought that that would be an opportunity for them to really sort of maybe uh lift sanctions and try to negotiate with Venezuela. No, that really hasn't happened. They pretty much stuck with WIDO and they've stuck with the existing sanction regime, even some of the secondary sanctions on diesel, in other words, preventing other countries from selling diesel to to Venezuela, things that really complicated. People thought that they would they would lift some of those. I think there is interest, but as you said, there there's so much else going on with the pandemic, with China, with all of the different problems that Biden is facing. This is just not uh, a priority, as it was not in, in the last year of the Trump administration. No, the Trump administration focused on this for 2019 because they thought it would be a quick victory. It wasn't, and so they pretty much lost interest as well. So I think, you know, this, this coming year, uh, there's some big decisions to be made about whether they're gonna continue to support the Guaido interim government. And I think we could see a transition a policy, but they're not they're not going to make it a priority. And they don't want to really own this policy and make any, you know, big show about it because it's a liability in South Florida. In other words, a lot of people, a lot of Venezuelan expats and, and Cuban population there, you know, support a hardline policy towards Venezuela. And of course, Florida is the most contested state, you know, and and is very important for the midterm elections as well as 2024. so they're not going to do anything that's a, a big policy switch or shift. If they if they did, it would have been the first couple of months. But they could, you know, move around the edges, tweak some things and and sort of slowly change policies in a way that sort of slides under the radar and uh, does not, you know, get a lot of attention. But other than that, it's hard to imagine a real shift.
0: Yeah. And if if, if anything, given the value of voting, trying to get in Florida, Into the Democratic column in the next presidential election, you'll see a tightening of policies against uh, Venezuela to to court that right wing vote in South Florida.
3: You could see a tightening of policies, you know, uh, either they'd have to tighten policies, leave them the same or make a big show of Trump's policies were incorrect. Marco Rubio is incorrect. We're going to do something that's successful. But so many people have had their hands burned on Venezuela, everything from the OAS to the Vatican in trying to get involved in Venezuela, that it's very unlikely that the Biden administration would really take this up as as a key strategic foreign policy initiative.
0: And in the meantime, Venezuela has not made itself into a base of terrorist operations against the United States. So we're not seeing a big threat down there.
3: Yeah, no. Once in a while you get get sensationalist reports about, you know, Iranian missiles and, you know, the... But they're all nonsense. And, uh, or, you know, that... Hezbollah and all kinds of people have looked into those uh, accusations have never come up with anything of substance. And so, no, none of, none of that is is really true. And so and I think the U.S. knows that pretty well. So it, it's it's just not a priority.
0: Well, I'm really glad we uh, touched on the subject this week. Latin America in general has gotten sort of short shrift in the news cycle. Understandably so. We're living in a world full of plots and exposes. It's, it's, it's mind numbing some days. but. Uh, If anything develops, uh, David Smiley, we'll certainly be checking back with you. Thanks for being on the Spy Talk podcast. Thank you, Jeff. That's David Smiley down at Tulane. He's currently working on a book called Venezuela's Transition to Illiberalism.
1: Yeah, Venezuela is really a mess. I was looking recently at the number of arrests being made on the U.S. southern border, and there's the usual mix of people from Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. But the numbers of Venezuelans being arrested has shot way, way up. And uh, just a reflection of what a mess that country is and how dire the situation is there.
0: Yeah, the chaos is not going to end down there anytime soon. As uh, Professor Smiley indicated, the Biden administration is not going to really play a big role in Venezuela. It's, it's got its plate is full with many other things to start with. but. Uh, I think uh, the administration's attitude is just to let it uh, keep smoldering. It's frying in its own grease down there, so to speak. And unfortunately for the Venezuelan people, the agony uh, is not going to end anytime soon.
1: We'll be back in just a few minutes to talk to an investigative reporter who has done his best to uncover the truth about a really unsettling episode in Pentagon history. Jeff, you and I both know James Gordon Meek and the quality of his work at ABC News, where he's covered national security for years. He is the producer and investigative reporter behind a film coming out November 11th on Hulu titled 3212 Unredacted. It is a complicated tale about a disastrous mission in Niger, a largely unknown front in the war on terror. Four special forces soldiers died that day, the film reveals new information about what happened to them, the Pentagon's deeply flawed response, and the deep furor of the families who simply want a straight explanation and accountability.
2: Four years ago, in 2017, a U.S. Green Beret team was on a patrol in Niger, Northwest Africa, in the, really the middle of nowhere in the Saharan Desert, and they were ambushed by ISIS. And it was like a 10 to 1 ratio. Of attackers to Americans, there were there were ten, eleven Americans on the team, and four were killed in action. And when it happened, uh, people seemed to be very shocked that there had been um, a combat incident in Niger. A lot of members of Congress said they didn't even know we were operating there, fighting there, um, and and even the families of the fallen expressed some surprise. So there was an investigation that was launched, and that. Came out about six months later, and they said that the team had gone rogue on an unapproved mission to kill or capture an ISIS commander, like the number three guy in Northwest Africa, and that they had gotten ambushed during this mission. And so the film starts out with that. And then immediately the family members start to tell you that they started to have suspicions because they began to compare notes with other family members and they were getting different stories. So that, that's the starting point of the film is uh, the families having suspicions. Then uh, they contacted, a couple of them contacted me. And, you know, their suspicions carried great weight, not only because I had covered the incident when it happened in October 2017 for ABC News with my other ABC colleagues. And we all thought at the time that even with fog of war considerations, we were all quite experienced covering the military in war, that something, things didn't add up. There's a lot of confusion about what actually happened, how many Americans were involved initially, why they were attacked, why they were out there, what kind of a team were they? Were they a black ops team? Were they a you know, conventional Green Beret team? But also these family members had, had national security experience themselves. So the first couple of the uh, parents that approached me, the, the stepdad is a retired FBI agent and the other family member from a different family was a combat veteran of Afghanistan. So these were people who had a lot of experience in harm's way. And I just soon discovered that among the families, they all had a lot of experience in law enforcement, intelligence, and the military.
1: Explain the title of the film, 3212 Unredacted. What is that a reference to?
2: So 3212 is a reference to the team's number. It was Operational Detachment Alpha 3212, which was from Second Battalion, Third Special Forces Group, Team 12. And then unredacted is a reference to the, the official investigation conducted by the, what we call the military calls a combatant command, United States Africa Command, which oversees our military operations in Africa. And they issued a report that was 268 pages long that was filled with, you know, the, the black marks or, or white blocks redacting information. And the film essentially, our, the investigative backbone of this film, as we track the grief of the families. Transitioning into suspicion and deep anger over the story they're being told is about stripping away the redactions and revealing the truth of, of the story.
1: So, as you mentioned, the Pentagon tried to blame the soldiers, saying they were on this rogue mission, that they were under trained and prepared. Did you find any evidence to support that?
2: Yeah. So, uh, the investigation was presented by the four star commanding general of AFRICOM, uh, General Thomas Waldhauser at the time. And he said, essentially, that, just to summarize, that the team had embarked on a rogue mission uh, to uh, capture or kill an ISIS commander without the approval of senior commanders. He said that they were poorly trained, they were ill prepared for battle, and that, in sort of an odd twist, he said they also undertook one of the missions right before they were ambushed in an effort to gather intelligence on a, an American who was held hostage and been kidnapped by militants. and. What we found in our investigation was that none of that was true.
1: One of the most amazing things to me watching this film is that you report that, in fact, this team raised red flags when they were eventually dispatched to go after this ISIS subcommander. And that then when they came under heavy fire, they again radioed and called for help. And it wasn't sent.
2: Yeah, it's extraordinary. The families were briefed by uh, by the investigators for AFRICOM, and they were not told that Captain Mike Perazzini, the detachment commander who led this team that was ambushed, who uh, was, you know, uh, the leader in this four-hour gunfight, which resulted in four guys getting killed, and they were down to like 60 rounds of ammunition before they it ended with the French coming in and, and extracting them. But the... Families were not told that Captain Perizzini had objected to the mission before they ever left the wire on October 3rd, 2017, that he felt it was thin intelligence. It was a long way to go and very rough terrain to go hunting essentially a cell phone signal for this ISIS commander. It was just a reconnaissance mission. Uh, and they went up, they did do the mission, the end first mission, and they didn't find the ISIS commander or the cell phone. But then they were retasked to go north and support another a Green Beret team that was going to fly in because they detected that cell phone signal again. But that team got turned back by a, a sandstorm. And then they were ordered to carry out this mission to clear the objective area or the campsite of the ISIS commander. And they didn't find anything there. But before they did that, the commander on the ground objected repeatedly, repeatedly said, we aren't equipped for this. Our partner force is wiped out after 24 hours. They have no food or water They're They're tired. We are not armed for this type of a mission to confront the number three ISIS commander in northwest Africa. And he was overruled. His commanders told him, who were actually based in Chad, to just go do it. The ambush occurred as they were going home after that fruitless campsite search. Families were told none of that during these briefings. And then, as you point out, during the gunfight, which went on for four hours, they they reported troops in contact. And there were so the other Green Beret team, the Sandstorm had cleared by then that morning and they took off and they requested permission to go to the aid of their comrades under fire. And they were repeatedly denied again by, their, by the battalion commander and another group of guys in Niame, the capital also requested permission to go to the aid of their comrades and were denied. So the French ended up going and rescuing the, to the team.
1: Do you think that the higher ups were afraid of another Black Hawk down?
2: They never said that, explicitly referencing that 1993, you know, real tragedy in Mogadishu, which was the last time there was loss of life of Americans in Africa. But one of the commanders uh, told the investigators that he did not remember denying permission, but said that he didn't know the situation on the ground. And so, therefore, you know, I think he was concerned. He said, I would have denied it anyway. I don't remember denying it, but I would have denied it because we didn't know how bad it was on the ground. I guess he did not want to send more guys in to be gunned down. But, you know, if you're the Green Beret team on the ground and you've been ambushed, you've lost four of your guys, you know, they didn't know if they were dead. They just lost them initially. In fact, one of the soldiers ended up being missing in action for two days, which is really unusual in the last 20 years to have a soldier missing in action at all, anywhere, Iraq, Afghanistan so it was extraordinary I and mean, you expect when you call for help your guys are going to come and and they didn't no american boots were on the ground until 3 hours after french helicopters evacuated the seven surviving americans
1: you got a lot of people on camera but you didn't get captain mike parazzini i really wanted to hear from him i'm sure yeah. you tried
2: i would say that for every person you see on camera in the film there were probably at least 10 people who I spoke to who are not on camera or on the record, but helped. You know, I, I interviewed almost everybody in the chain of command uh, in the process of investigating this incident over the last four years. So, the some of the guys on the team, you know, they have a legitimate issue, which is I think some of them intend to go for jobs in the military or intelligence that would require a cover identity or something like that. So. And also, these guys were put under, people don't realize it, three investigations. The only one that has been publicly disclosed is the big one by AFRICOM. But there actually were two other investigations by U.S. Army Special Operations Command and by Special Operations Command in Tampa. And those have never been disclosed before now. Uh, In fact, I'm telling you for the first time, it's not even in the film. So these guys were under a lot of scrutiny, and they were thinking, Gosh, we survived this extraordinary gunfight and they really didn't trust anybody. So they were not really inclined to go out on the record. And, and they're all active duty for the most part, still, except for a couple.
1: What so. were you able to discern about CIA involvement?
2: That was, again, another thing the families were never told about. And I learned from intelligence officials that there was a vehicle that joined the, the patrol when they went outside the wire in the morning of October 3rd, 2017, that had a cellular surveillance device. It was provided by CIA and it was manned by a couple of Nigerian, what they call local nationals or indigenous forces, who had been trained to use that piece of equipment. And that was the idea was they were going to augment the team's reconnaissance mission to try to lock in on that cell phone of the ISIS commander. The CIA did not drive the mission. What they did is provide an asset to those guys because they had a suspicion that the, the guy they were looking for, the ISIS commander might be holding or involved in the captivity of Jeffrey Woodkey, who today is still a hostage. He was a Christian, is a Christian humanitarian aid worker who was kidnapped in 2016. So they were going to help try to find this guy in order to track him in the hope that the breadcrumbs might lead to information on Jeffrey Woodkey that could lead to his eventual recovery.
1: Those higher ups who made the call to go forward with the mission, despite the fact that people on the ground were saying, whoa, those higher ups who didn't send aid to try to rescue those individuals, they're still serving, right?
2: One was Colonel Brad Moses, who was the third special forces group commander, has retired. I believe that Lieutenant Colonel Dave Painter, who was the second battalion commander located in Chad at the time, who Uh, Overruled the the, uh, ground commander's request to stop the mission and go return to base, uh, and also denied the request to go to the aid of the team when they were under fire. I don't believe he has retired yet, but these men were never held accountable. And that's been a big problem for the families. The two star general who commanded Special Operations Command in Africa was reprimanded, and he didn't even know about the mission. But why were the two commanders in between not reprimanded when all the low level guys? were reprimanded and Major Alan Van Son sadly was
1: actually forced out of the army. So what's the answer to that question? Uh,
2: you know, the Senate in a way held them accountable by uh, blocking their promotion to uh, higher rank. Colonel Moses was denied promotion to general and uh, colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Painter was denied a promotion of full Colonel. I think for the families, that's not exactly accountability. The fact that the army did not hold these commanders accountable when they made the key decisions It will always be something that bothers the families of the fallen.
1: One of the family members said, I believe, they let them down and then they lied about it. They're still furious, aren't they? Even though medals were eventually awarded.
2: Uh, And and in some cases, those valor rewards were downgraded. Dustin Wright, a Green Beret, killed in action, was recommended for the Medal of Honor. And it was downgraded to a silver star without any explanation they are angry. I think some of them are just still to this day furious. They're furious that they were lied to. They're furious that they were misled. They're they're furious that they were given bad information. I'll just give you one quick example. David Johnson, who was missing in action for 48 hours before village children found his body. There were no boots on the ground for 22 hours before the children in the village found his body under a tree. But He eventually was awarded a posthumous silver star, but after his wife was told he was missing in action on October 4th, 2017, the next day, October 5th, she got a phone call from someone in the army who said, your husband has been captured and the enemy wants to trade him for one of their guys in prison in Niger. And then a day later, they knocked on her door and said, your husband has been found dead. Nobody ever explained that uncorroborated false intelligence report or why anybody would have the audacity to call that that wife and tell her that because that's left that family with lingering doubt about his fate was he captured was he executed they don't you know i think his wife now believes he wasn't but it's taken a long time for them to get there because you know they just weren't people should never have made that phone call I and mean, we have a whistleblower uh, in the film who was a was a senior pentagon official who said it was unconscionable to call a family Give them uncorroborated information like that.
1: You've covered the US military for a long time. Is this kind of screw up, this kind of cover up, very rare? A lot of people ask
2: that question. It's a great question. And I think a lot of people assume that for every case, be it Pat Tillman or uh, my friend, Private First Class Dave Sherritt, who was shot by his own lieutenant in Iraq in 2008, and the command covered up the fact that he had been left to to die by his own lieutenant after shooting him people wonder there must be more you know because not every case is investigated by investigative reporter so i think the answer is yes but you know most people who serve in uniform are honorable and they do the right thing but you know you have these exceptions
1: and i should point out this is not at all an anti military film in fact There's a coda here about the brother of one of the people who was killed reenlisting in the army after his brother's death.
2: Will Wright, really remarkable young man, combat veteran of Afghanistan, and one of the first people to contact me and say, you know, my brother, they told me my brother was killed by mortar fire, and I opened his casket and examined his wounds myself. And he, I mean, just broke like a twig telling me this, and that he could see his brother had been killed By a lot of small arms fire. Yeah, he decided that the only way to change things for the better of the system, change the system for the better would be to reenlist as a staff sergeant. And he, at the age of 33, went through special forces selection, which is a very old age. And he was selected. So he is now going through three years of training to become a Green Beret like his little brother. And, you know, he just is a patriot and they all are. But they've all come to question their country, and many of them have served in uniform and have served in harm's way. They are a very patriotic group of people, but they feel betrayed by, in many cases, the institutions they once served.
1: What do you hope happens as a result of this reporting?
2: Well, I don't want to editorialize. I hope, always hope, that an official record, if there are errors pointed out, will be corrected. You know, officials can take actions to correct mistakes. They can take actions to correct a record when mistakes and errors are pointed out. And I hope, I think the families really hope that the Pentagon will order a review of this investigation from 2018 with the information now available, which was even available at the time, and correct the record and upgrade the valor awards that were downgraded and re-examine reprimands that were given to the low level guys on the team and, in the, and the chain of command from the company level down.
1: You got some incredible video. It's an amazing film to watch. You also um, made a real point of filling in the information about these individuals who, who lost their lives that one of them was famous in his hometown for riding around as a kid on a bike with one wheel and another one was a, was a chess champion. Why was it important to illustrate who they were as people?
2: My colleagues who I made this film with, our director and producer, Brian Epstein, um, our editor and producer, Andy Fredericks, and I all felt that it was important to memorialize the lives of Sergeant First Class Jeremiah Johnson, Staff Sergeant Dustin Wright, Staff Sergeant Brian Black and Sergeant David Johnson. Because so many of these stories about this incident had been sort of headlines with their official portrait, but who they were as individuals was really not explored very much. And they were each really wonderful guys. And we now know without any question that though none of them had been in combat before, they all fought ferociously and with extraordinary valor and heroism. That's not an editorial statement. That's a fact. And new information has even come to light recently that makes that even more abundantly clear that these men fought with everything they had and brought great honor on themselves. And the two guys who were support guys were recently given an honorary, the Green Beret posthumously in an honorary way which has never been done before for support soldiers to be given the Green Beret posthumously. But it it speaks to their valor, heroism, and soldiering under fire.
1: James Gordon-Meek, you and I have never worked together. We've worked as competitors. I do want to say thank you. You know, journalism gets a bad rap these days, and some of it's deserved. Some of it is partisan hackery, in my opinion. But what you've done here is really ask the questions and dig deep and uncover the truth. Really good work.
2: I really appreciate that, Jane. Thank you for saying that. These are all wonderful families and they have led us into their lives for the last uh, you know, three and a half years and shown us their grief and loss and their joys and their births and deaths and All of it. uh, We have gone through this journey together, but they are remarkable and their loved ones deserve to be remembered and honored. And I hope our film does that.
1: That was James Gordon Meek, the investigative reporter and producer behind the film 3212 Unredacted, coming out Veterans Day, November 11th on Hulu.
0: Well, if anyone could get to the bottom of that story, it's James Meek. I've known him for years. Uh, He embedded with Special Forces Troops in Afghanistan. He knows the subject in and out. He was involved recently uh, with efforts to extricate people from Afghanistan outside of U.S. government uh, control. So he's a real expert on special forces, and uh, we're really happy to have him on the show.
1: And I have to say that this film includes some amazing video, including actual combat footage from the encounter that these soldiers had with the militants. How did they get it? Well, the ISIS fighters recovered it from the helmet cam of one of the fallen soldiers and used it in a propaganda video. James told me he and the other producers were very careful about how they used it in the film in order not to reinforce the message of the terrorists.
0: Fascinating. I hope uh, a lot of people listening today will get a chance to see that film. Meanwhile, that's another edition of the Spy Talk podcast. Hope to see you next week here.
1: Indeed. I'm Jean Meserve. Thanks a lot for joining us. And remember to subscribe to SpyTalk on Substack. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.